51 through 62. This is a major turn in the Gospel of Luke. He's sort of been following similar to that of the Gospel of Mark. But now as we begin in verse 51, it's a substantial change in the narrative. And some uh, commentators have called this the traveling narrative. He's following the travels of Jesus from this point forward to Jerusalem. And... What we'll look at here this morning as we begin this section, verses 51 through 62, is in spite of rejection, in spite of the cost, we are to set our face and run with the mission. Jesus sets the example for that. In verses 51 through 56, we have this non-retaliation approach to ministry. It's really easy for people who are in ministry to become angry with those who don't see it the way we see it or don't understand things the way we may understand them. And for those who may not have our worldview, and it's just easy to become angry and offended and sometimes try to defend God in the midst of all that. This past week, I was listening to this one fellow who who's really upset with the God of the Bible who claims to be holy and righteous, and yet he allows cancer, and he allows all these ridiculously painful things to go on in the earth, you know, the whole idea of suffering, and why would a God of love allow this? Well, it is not an answerable question from our point of view. We don't really understand the extent of all that, but we know that that's not the kind of God that he is. There's reasons why that goes on, and guess what? It's not his fault, but he doesn't know that. Jesus... uh, here, as we'll read now uh, in verses 51, is leaving Galilee and heading south and, and eventually will end up in Jerusalem. So let's start here in verse 51. Now it came to pass that when time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face, and as he went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then he went to another village. The non-retaliation approach to ministry is a very important concept. It's a very important thing to have within our own lives. We are sheep among wolves, uh, and uh, it's easy to become angry with those who would injure us or reject us. And so in spite of rejection, we need to continue our course. Now, notice it says here that when the time had come, do you think about how important time is? You know, it's, it's uh, in this case, it's after the transfiguration, and he uh, is now time for him to accomplish what he came for. Notice that, uh, Luke uses something that's not 
used in the other Gospels to be received up. What is he referring to there? He seems to skip over the rejection that he's going to face at Jerusalem by the establishment. He skips over the passion that Jesus himself is about to uh, endure. He skips over the cross and even the resurrection. But he goes right to the heart of the issue, to the ultimate victory. I believe he's referring to the ascension. And now was that time for that to unfold and to happen. You know, the thing about time, it's, really, it's an interesting concept. You know, we don't sit around thinking about time much, do we? Oh, and we usually just ask, what time is it? <laughs> um, you know, the thing about time, it just keeps happening. <laughs> And I do find it very interesting. Um, so in your leisure time, you can muse upon that, since you don't have anything else better to do. But I will throw this at you. What if time in heaven is the same as it is here on earth? Now, I'm not trying to dis uh, ruin your perspective of heaven by saying that. But in Revelation 8, 1, it says that there was... Silence in heaven for about half an hour. That does tell you. See, we have this thing that's been brought to us from some pulpit ministries that there's no time in heaven. Well, that's not true. It's different kind of time. It's probably multidimensional, which we can't even wrap our minds around. But it also may have similarities. It may be close to what we have here. Uh, in that experience because there is an order of events is there not this happens and then this happens for those of you who are fighting to accept the fact that there's time in heaven think about music you can't have music without time you can't have order of events without time so there's something there it's probably like I said it's probably multi-dimensional but while you're there and you're being bored with all that let's turn to Ecclesiastes <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and this is a, a captured concept by Solomon. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep. Time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate time of war, a time of peace. And what profit has the worker from that which he labors? I have seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he also has put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. And I know nothing is better for them than to rejoice 
and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Time, so important. We only have so much of it given to the sons of men. Psalm 90, verse 12. So, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Notice he doesn't say, teach us to number our years, because we only get it one day at a time. When you think about that, you know, if you live to be 100 years old, which I hope I don't, <laughs> that's only 36,000 265, would that be right? 36,265 days? That doesn't seem like that many. 100 years sounds like a long time, doesn't it? But when you break it down into days, like, wait. Now, some of you are well on your past the halfway point there, (laughs) including myself. Teach us to number our days, Lord. Notice here it says that he, in verse 51, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, your face, you know, that's who you are. That's your person. Uh, That's your revealed character. He set his face. He's setting his direction. And this is an important uh, word here in our text. He's fixated, as it were. He's resolved. He's established this direction, and he's not going to change it. You know, this is actually a fulfillment of uh, one of the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn to that. Isaiah 50, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I will not be ashamed He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Think about flint. It's a very hard rock. It's dark. It's used to express the impossible tasks that may be before us. So the implication here, obviously, is that Jesus is setting his person, his face, to accomplish the mission that he had been given by the Father. He set his direction. He is inflexible. He has an unwavering determination to accomplish that which God has ordained for him. He sets the example. He's the trailblazer for you and I. We must become of an unwavering determination to accomplish that which God has called us to. He will fulfill the scriptures concerning him. Think for a moment of his unwavering determination as he made this final lap. And what was he thinking about? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew the pain. He knew that he would become the offering of sin. He understood conceptually, obviously, the guilt that would be transferred from all of mankind upon his soul, upon his spirit. And he would be the offering 
His blood, his precious blood, his perfect holy blood would become the atoning sacrifice acceptable unto God. He would fulfill what was necessary in the justice of God and yet in that display the incredible love of God. He did not shrink back that from that task. You know what? Jesus considered you. He considered you and me worth dying for. Let me ask you. Are you resolved about your God-given purpose and task? Do you have an unrelenting Desire, an unwavering determination to accomplish that which God has called you to? If you don't, just ask him for it, because you should have it. Nobody else can complete your mission. Only you can image God in the way that he's ordained you to. I can't do your job. You can't do my job. We all have a job to do in imaging the Father. It's an unalterable mission. We must be resolved you know, we're all familiar with the phrase, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? That's true. You know, think about the day that you were converted, the, the love that poured over your heart, the release from the guilt of sin. For the first time, you experienced what true love really was when you met God and he washed away it all. All the guilt, gone. Where are you at in all that now? Is, is your joy gone? Is your peace missing? It's okay. God can redirect, reinvigorate all of us. The important thing is that we stay on track. That we become refocused, if that's the case. Because finishing well is very important. We don't want to enter into the kingdom ashamed. We don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. We want to be about our Father's business. So may God help each of us get focused and refocused and stay steadfastly set, fixated, as you will, set our faces on the task that we've been given by God. Notice here it says that he sent messengers before his face. This is his final trip to Jerusalem, and this is different than all others. Remember, he would tell people, hey, don't tell anybody that you just got healed, okay? You know, just keep it, keep, you know, tone it down, right? Not now. Here's the last hurrah, the swan, you know, if you will. He has uh, not done this prior, but he knows this is it. And so here's one last invitation. One last invitation for the Galileans. One last invitation for the Samaritans and those, and those villages that he would be stopping by on his way through on his trip to Jerusalem. You know, I think this is an important thing to point out. I think God does this to everybody before their last days. He gives them one last shot, one last chance to hear the gospel. He quietly beckons the souls of men to come, to return, to follow the path of righteousness. Obviously, many are too busy. Many are just not interested. Yet, when the time draws near, I'm of the opinion 
that he speaks to people in the night seasons. He comes, and sometimes he sends messengers into people's lives to remind them, because he doesn't want anybody to be outside the kingdom. He wants all men to be saved. Now, as we read through this story, we see that James and John weren't too happy about this rejection by the Samaritans. And they were loyal followers of Jesus, and they expected by now, after this three-year ministry of Jesus, that these people should know that he's the Messiah, regardless of whether or not they respect the Jewish people. Because you know, if you remember the history, when the northern ten tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians, one of the uh, tactics of the enemy was to take the Jewish people that were in that area and dislocate them to, the, to Assyria, and then bring in the foreigners from Assyria and plant them in the land of Israel, and thus dis- destroying the national sovereignty of Israel. Sound familiar? <laughs> sort of going on in, in our southern border right now. They're trying to destroy our national sovereignty. May God help us fend this off. But they were angry. Uh, because the Samaritans rejected. There was a, as much as the Jewish people disdained the Samaritans, the Samaritans also disdained them. And, you know, this is why it's an interesting, you know, the little, the woman, you know, John 4, the woman at the well. What is it with you Jewish people you have nothing to do with? That's what are you talking to me for? I'm, you know, you're Jewish, I'm a Samaritan, what are you doing? And then, you know, Jesus, you know, the good Samaritan, which would be an oxymoron to a Jew, right? <laughs> no such thing that didn't possibly exist. And yet, Jesus is not upset that he's being rejected. You know, it's like he wants all to be saved. But James and John are, are the, you know, what, what's going on there? It's a lot to think about, contemplate. They're angry. So let's just use our apostolic authority and let's wipe them out. (laughs) No, that's not what Jesus had in mind. (laughs) You know, sometimes we're offended. As I mentioned earlier, listening to this man rant against the God of the Bible, the creator God, I I became angry. Like, this is, you are believing a lie, bro. I mean, come on. This is not true. You've totally been deceived, you know. I'm, but inside it, I, you know, there's this righteous indignation, you know. <laughs> like, God needs my help to defend himself. God doesn't need me to defend him. You know, people are going to misunderstand. They're not going to see it like we may see it. They're not going to have the same worldview. But we have to take we have to understand of what spirit we are of. Jesus came to save, not destroy. There's only one miracle that he performed his entire earthly ministry that, that led to destruction. And that was the destruction of the fig tree when it withered. And there was something beyond the fig tree that's involved there, which we won't go into. And so Jesus came to, to save, not to destroy. Fire from heaven? Do we really want that? Did, did James and John really understand what was going on when Elijah you know, brought that? You look, 
people are going to be held accountable, not to us, but to God. If they reject the Lord, that's on them. But the people who do reject the Lord are not immediately judged. I mean, would, we'd probably all be dead by now if that was the case, right? And again, if, God, if we sense that, that what is being said or what is happening is offensive to God, we can just let the Lord take care of that. He can defend himself. I think it's more important that we understand why we become angry. You know, were they, were James and John a little angry with the Samaritans because they were not pure Jew? Did they have a little, you know, bias against their nationality, you know, because they weren't part of the Jewish bloodline? They'd been corrupted because of what had happened in the past? Or because they didn't respect the, the, the worship that went on in Jerusalem and they had their own little temple there on Mount Gerizim, you know? Were they jealous for Jesus? You're going to treat our Savior like that. We'll take you out. <laughs> so there's lots of reasons for us to examine why we are angry. And Jesus... Look, we have, we have a non-retaliatory ministry. This is what we're about, saving people. If people resist us or reject us, let it go. Let the Lord take care of it. Let love cover it. So what did Jesus do when he was rejected here? He moved on. There's our example it is what it is, we move on. In spite of rejection, we move on. Now, this last section, 57 through 62, it's in spite of the cost. We need to keep our faces set like flint. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here we have the terms of discipleship given to us by Jesus. And the first one that we'll look at here is, I will follow you wherever you go. I believe is the emotional commitment to discipleship. This was a teacher of the law. We get this from the other Gospels. And it's amazing how the Lord knows how to answer each and every one of these responses to him. We don't always understand uh, the people that approach us for this or that, uh, their motives, but the Lord does, and he knows how to answer people accordingly. You know, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay. 
So what is Jesus communicating to this person? Would you follow me if your creature comforts are lacking? What did the seeker not understand about following Jesus that he should have understood or should come to know? Well, first of all, Jesus didn't have a home to call his own. He wasn't exactly stuck in an office setting the Mosaic law hour upon hour. He was out and about doing the Father's business, was he not? Did this scribe, you know, you know, Jesus, man, his popularity is really growing. It's the happening thing in, in Israel right now. I think I'll just kind of join the crowd because this is really cool. Well, we don't really know what motive of his heart would have been. But I have no doubt Jesus answered him appro appropriately. And he challenged the man, look, if you're going to follow me, it's going to affect your creature comforts. You're going to have to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ and to be a disciple. You're going to face some tough times. And are you going to cut and run? Or are you going to remain faithful? That's the question. This is a lot harder than we had ever anticipated, is it not, to follow the Lord? Your flesh, the world, the devil, all kinds of attacks. But lifestyle and our certain accommodations are not promised by the Lord. An emotional commitment only lasts so long. As soon as the emotions run out, you're done. It's got to be much deeper than that. What happens when the bad times arrive? What happens when my joy is gone? Or people misrepresent me or reject me or the excitement has vanished? What then? What about the accommodations where I'm called to? Why in the world did I end up in South Carolina? Ouch. <laughs> I had a culture shock myself a number of years ago. But I am so glad I'm here. I've learned to adjust. I've learned to adapt. And I love it here. Serving in the kingdom means you're a worker. You're a worker in the Lord's vineyard. You know, in a vineyard, the trees need care. The lawn needs fertilized. The work in the kingdom is basically the same no matter where you go, whether it's South Carolina, Florida, California, or wherever. People are basically the same, or whether you go to a foreign country. We all have fallen natures. We all need the same gospel message. We all receive the same forgiveness. And yet, there are many unpleasant things that need to be taken care of in the Lord's vineyard. You know, who wants to sweep the floors? Who wants to mow the lawn? Who wants to take out the trash? <laughs> oh, and you start, hold on, hold on. You'll get your chance. You don't, usually you don't have to tell. You know, people aren't lining up, you know. And so it's really easy for us to put stipulations on where we serve the Lord and how we serve the Lord. And that's an emotional commitment. It's not gonna, you're not going to make it through the tough times in an emotional commitment. The second guy, I believe, is a security commitment. 
Let me first. Ooh. Let me first. Does that, wait a minute. Does that sound right for a Christian to say that? Me first? Are you serious? No, it's counterintuitive. It's not what a servant says. No, the guy who comes in from the field, the master says to his servant, you know, prepare me food. Hold on, master, let me eat first. (laughs) No, 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 right? It's just not the way it is. That person cannot be a disciple when he says, let me first. Why is he putting himself first? Because he's worried about his security, is he not? Jesus gave a direct command to this particular guy, follow me. Oh, it's an option. Oh, it's optional. Oh, no. He's taking it as though it was optional because let me first comes out of his mouth. See, what's really going on here? You know, he says, let me first go and bury my father. Was his father just passed away? Eh, I don't think so. The implication is, I'll serve you when you know, mom and dad are gone. Because what happens after mom and dad are gone? I get some inheritance. And then when I get the inheritance, I'll be set for the rest of my life. I won't have to worry about my physical needs anymore. Then I can serve the Lord. That's what he's saying. He wants security. I won't have to worry about my provisions anymore. I won't have to walk by faith. Won't that be great? No. All disciples are required to walk by faith. And this is the security test. Everybody goes through this. If you're following the Lord, you just have to come to that point where, well, we're just going to have to trust the Lord. That's really the best place to stay and be all the time. We're just going to have to trust the Lord. And so Jesus, you know, he makes this, seems like a really harsh statement, you know, let the dead bury the dead. What's he really saying? Is that he is not without compassion. He's saying, look, let the physically dead be taken care of by the spiritually dead. Your mom and your dad, your family, it'll all work out. It'll take care of itself. There will be others that can take care of you. Follow me. You follow me. Have you heard him say that to you? Follow me. Are you worried about your security? God's promised to meet our needs. How he does it, the way he does it, is totally up to him. The third guy, I believe, has got the same, part of the same issue. Let me first say goodbye to my family. This is, I think, the approval commitment. Let me first go bid my family farewell. I will follow you, but yeah, it's sort of a conditional commitment. I want to know how this is going to affect my family. You know, as mom and dad, are they going to be okay with this? Because if mom and dad aren't okay and I fall out of favor with them and my family members, then, well, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can do that. You, now, this may not be a big deal 
in our Western culture in that sense, but in these other cultures in the Middle East, etc., you are baptized in the name of Jesus, you're considered dead. It's, you're excommunicated from the family. There is a price to pay. And so these situations here for these three, this emotional commitment, this security commitment, this approval commitment are defining moments for these people. Of course, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what kind of commitment have I made to Jesus? Am I in one of these categories or am I fully sold out? No matter what happens, if I live or die, doesn't matter, I'm going to follow Jesus. What kind of commitment do you have? These are, this, I believe, were, as I said, defining moments for these people. Now, just understand that this may have not been the end for these people. And I don't think that when we, because we've all had defining moments, and we'll probably have a few more before we get to the end. And they're not an end all. And we may have missed a couple already along the way in our journey. I think the Bible's full of defining, defining moments. Adam and Eve had one. <laughs> Did they have one? <laughs> Look at us. We're the result of that defining moment, are we not? You know, the fall of man. Cain had a defo- defining moment when he had a terrible worship service. And his offering was not received by the Lord. You know, you think about King David. He had several defining moments in his life, did he not? He had an encounter with a bear and a lion while watching his father's sheep. I would say that was a defining moment. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't have been king. (laughs) He would have been lunch. He fought Goliath and defeated him. That was definitely a defining moment in his life. Sort of got him on the number one celebrity list in the nation of Israel, which brought jealousy and envy and hatred from the king since he was no longer receiving that position of honor. It went to David for his exploits. David had another defining moment, did he not, when he stayed in the palace and he should have been on the battlefield? Yeah, that led to some big trouble. But then he had another defining moment sometime, maybe nine, about a year later or so, when Nathan the prophet came and confronted him with what went on previously. His response saved his life. He confessed and owned his sin and repented, and God demonstrated his mercy. That was a defining moment. Was it not a defining moment when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ? Obviously. We all have these defining moments. Peter had a couple of those. He got out of the boat and walked on water. That was pretty powerful, was it not? None of the other guys did it, but Peter did. Don't Just remember, he did walk on water. I don't know how many steps he took, but he, he walked. Hats off, bro. Good job. But he also denied the Lord. That was another defining moment. But what was even greater than... And, and better than that defining moment where he failed was the one where he received reconciliation. When the Lord restored him, look, you're not disqualified from your mission and your purpose because you failed. See, a lot of us 
fit into that category. Well, we've denied the Lord. We've made an emotional commitment. We're really worried about our security, so it really serves the Lord yet too much because, you know, well, we've got to do this other stuff. Let me first, me first. We haven't got over that yet, right? Just think about the reconciling power of our Savior, this love. And as he said to Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times. Do you love me more than these other disciples? You, you, you've been claiming to be like the Pope here. Do you love me more than these guys? You're, you're better, more spiritual than they are. Oh, man, like just, it's just coming home to roost, is it not? That pride, it happens in our spiritual pride. Or as he say, do you, or do you love me more than these fish that you just hauled in here so we could have breakfast? You love your occupation more than you love me? I didn't really know what the Lord was implying. Peter got it. Oh, Lord. You know all things. Broken. That's what it's so important when it comes to discipleship. There's a brokenness and a surrender. Without that, without denying self, it's no longer me first. Let me first. No, no. What saith you, Lord? I am at your beck and call. What would you have me to do? You don't see Apostle Paul when he's knocked off his high horse going to Damascus to kill Christians, meeting the Lord for the first time, saying, Lord, let me first. No, it was, Lord, what would you have me to do? You see, God wants to raise up a church full of servants, a church full of disciples that put him first regardless of what it may cost. Disciples who have set their faces like flint to accomplish the God-given task set before them. You wonder what God's after? He's, He's building our character, our passion, our love for him. Defining moments are not planned. They're not scripted out by man. They're ordained by God and his providential rule to bring us to the point where we choose to do the right thing. You know, lightning strikes. and We assume that it strikes at random, but it only strikes because the atmospheric conditions are perfect for that to happen. Each set of circumstances are ideal for lightning to strike and to form. <laughs> kind of like our lives, circumstances, God was orchestrating, bringing things about the perfect condition for these defining moments so that we make the right choice. Remember, God is for us. He's not against us. He's on our side. He bled and died. If it was the death of Christ that brought us into a relationship with God, Paul says, how much more shall his life bring us to the very heart of God? Defining moments sometimes are deal makers, sometimes are deal breakers, so to speak. The phrase, you snooze, you lose. We're all familiar with that. Really what we need to do is just be paying attention. 
just be ready. When he speaks, let's, not, let's be like Samuel. Speak for your servant hears. That's how we develop. That's how we make the right choice during a, a divining, defining moment. I'm listening. Just remember they will come and go without warning. That's why we need to pay attention. And if you've failed at yours a time or two, again, they're not a, a be-all or an end-all situation. We know the Lord is gracious. He's merciful. But he's working towards an end. He has a purpose and a destiny. He's got something, understand, he's got something so special for you. And when we make the right choice, we inherit that. We are blessed by it. And the key is knowing that God has this for us, this plan, and that we're paying attention because he is the initiator of the plan. Have you put the hand, your hand to the plow? If you have, don't look back. Yeah, you can't keep the furrow straight. I grew up on a farm. I, plow, I learned how to plow at a young age. I wasn't using a team of horses, tractor, but so my grandfather taught me how to do it. Pick a point across the other end of the field and don't take your eyes off of it. Otherwise, your furrow is going to be crooked. And that makes for a rough time plowing when the furrow's not straight. Okay. Set your face like flint. Focus. If there's ever a time in the history of our country, in the, in the time in your life, to be focused on what God has for you, it's right now. Now's not the time to be me first, Lord. Let me first, whatever you want to put there. Now's the time to really sell out. Stop playing around with your destiny. Take advantage of the defining moment that God is presenting to you or will present to you. God is looking for loyal servants who love him. He has loyal love towards us. That's the least we can do is express our loyal love and surrender to him. We have to develop the heart that Paul had and it should come through Acts 20, 24. And think in terms of communion here as, as we come close now we're going to pass the elements out here. Paul in Acts 20, 24 says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. We're here to witness, to be his witnesses and to share what we've received with others. And the only way we're going to be effective disciples is if we stop counting our lives dear to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul uses this race analogy quite often. Do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. 
Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it to receive an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Keeping the flesh under control, keeping it nailed to the cross, dying to self. No longer I first, but God first. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to redeem us, to provide the sacrifice for us, to be our trailblazer, to show us how to live life. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us all things richly to enjoy. And you really have tempered our lives with so much grace and love and mercy. We are so grateful. But here we are once again just wanting to lay our lives down that we might serve you with passion, with joy and commitment. We want to follow you holy, Lord. We want to be your disciples. So renew our minds as we desire to renew our commitment to follow you and lay down our lives for your namesake, Lord. Fathers, we take this time to remember what Jesus did for us. Please bring to remembrance the sorrow, the pain, the willingness of his heart to save us. Make that cup and that bread a vivid reality of what has been accomplished on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Fellows are going to